HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. And what time is it, folks? It's 12 p.m. on a Monday, and that means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, today, my guest is the multi-talented and extraordinary Eric Hoffner, a freelance photojournalist who writes about the environment, food, and the areas where those topics overlap. His articles and images appear in numerous publications from Grist to National Geographic Newswatch, On Earth, The Sun, and The Guardian. His most recent Guardian piece, which we'll be discussing today, explored the issue of developing cleaner cooking methods for the world's poor and the growing importance of solar cooking to that effort. Um, you can find links to all of his articles at erichoffner.com. That's H-O-F-F-N-E-R and Eric with a K. Um, Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Katie. Thanks. I'm doing great, and it's always great to join my favorite uh, <laughs> food show on the, on the Internet. Well, in a moment of complete uh, and shameless uh, self-promotion uh, and promotion for the network, um, it's our fundraising drive, our fall fundraising drive right now, and um, I just want to know if you can think of any other program that would be discussing for 30 to 40 minutes uh, the issue of solar cooking Anywhere on any bandwidth, whether it's internet or uh, regular mainstream radio. No, I don't, and that's why I tune in, and that's why I'm always curious who your guests are and what they're talking about and why you want to talk about them, because you're, 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 you guys are so great at, at uh, picking out topics that are really interesting to, to everyone who wants to eat. I mean, it's, it's singular. Thank you, Eric. Okay, we're going to take that bite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks, I've been making guests talk about, you know, the fact that we really are the only place that listeners can tune in for, you know, really extraordinarily in-depth interviews with a, just a tremendous range of experts uh, on virtually every subject related to the food industry, whether it's restaurants, whether it's charities, whether it's uh, manufacturing, it doesn't really matter. It's like, we are the place for that. And I think, um, you know, we deserve to have tremendous support from our listeners as well as from other sponsors in the corporate world. So um, thanks for that soundbite, Eric. I really appreciate it. 
<laughs> and now let's talk about your article, which I thought was just amazing. So this was a piece in The Guardian, um, and it was basically um, showcasing the fact that solar cooking is, you know, is an option. It's a technology that exists, and yet somehow it isn't um, or hasn't penetrated into the mainstream the way you might have thought it would, especially in countries that um, have ample uh, ample amounts of sun with which to power these. So, so tell us how you got interested in the topic, and then um, give us a little thumbnail of the article. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in the environment and food and where those things interact and overlap. And, uh, you know, this topic really came very clear to me when I started looking at the, the issues of how the world cooks every day, how people wake up and, and three billion people, um, that's a lot of people in this world, wake up and put a spark to some sort of wood to start the, uh, the cooking for the day for the family. And um, that is, that's the case almost everywhere. And um, it has huge impacts on air quality, both inside the home and outside, you know, from cutting down forests for, for, for wood. That's a climate issue to smoke inhalation in the home. That's a human health problem. Yeah. Um, there, there's so many ways that these things interact. And so I really I got fascinated with, with, um, with what's going on because there's a, a huge international effort going on to help people to get them, you know, jumped up through, you know, some of these, some of these really difficult hoops of, of, of uh, energy impoverishment into something else to cook on every day that won't kill them. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating, you know, um, issue to take up on your show because this is a, a case where what, what you cook with will kill you, yeah. not just... <laughs> <laughs> what you eat after you cook it, but you know the, the act of cooking is actually killing millions yeah, you, of people. You had an amazing number, uh, some statistics on the illness and mortality from the use of of either wood or charcoal, even uh, which is apparently preferable, or dung, or any of the other many um, options that people use that c- they collect from around themselves um, to, in order to fire up that stove. Um, what were some of those numbers? It was like in the millions. Yes. The uh, the fact is that people who collect wood or or biomass to cook with use about two tons of that per year, mm. and when you add that up, that burning all that brings a billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere wow. annually, and. Um, these are, you know, these are not high-tech stoves where we're using, you know, very well-vented little, you know, units to cook really uh, cleanly. These are typically a three-stone fire, three big stones and a fire between them and a pot balanced between them on the three points, you know, and inside the home. And it's just, you know, the smoke building and everyone's eyes running and wow. and all this. And, and, you know, it's typically the women who uh, bear the brunt of this. They're, they're the ones responsible for the cooking and for the collecting of all the wood or the, the biomass of, or dung or whatever it is. Uh, and and their children. The children are always nearby, and so the majority of people who are dying every year from smoke inhalation, um, that you know, which leads to pneumonia, bronchitis, heart disease, a bunch of other uh, syndromes. The bulk of them are women and children, and uh, so that's why this international effort was really fascinating me. There's people. 
from the highest levels of international government to entrepreneurs who are rolling out, um, you know, solutions that they think can help people burn less wood or dung or whatever it is uh, to start saving some lives, saving forests, saving watersheds, um, and also saving uh, women and children from danger because, remember, you wake up in the morning, and in many of these cultures, it's it's not a choice as to whether a woman can go out and, and collect wood to cook for her family. She's expected to do it, and usually she brings her kids. And so it's like women and girls largely going out, you know, even before the sun comes up with right. a machete or some other tool to uh, cut and collect wood and bring it back on their heads or on their backs in huge, huge amounts. So it's grueling work, it's dangerous, and this is, has to happen before anything else happens during the day. You know, whether you're going to work in the fields or you're going to, you know, fix your, your, your roof or whatever you, else you have to do in your life, this comes first. And, and going out into the bush in the wee hours like this is really dangerous. Women get attacked by animals, by, by robbers, all kinds of bad things happen. So just the multiplier effects of this whole... Uh, reality of, of burning this sort of fuel for, for just cooking is, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. No, you, I mean, it's, it was a shocking uh, revelation to me. I mean, nobody really thinks about it. I guess we all, you know, we're so comfortable here in the States. We have our gas or our, you know, propane piped right in. It's, you know, it's clean energy. We don't have to think mm-hmm. about it. You know, but <clears throat> it's true. There are, as you said, three billion people who are burning biomass of one form or another. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. the organization, the, the number that you were, were looking for, maybe was four point seven million people die every year. That's right. From the smoke, right? Uh, some estimates put it a little higher. Some put it a little lower. And actually, there was a new study recently. And that's just indoor air smoke. Uh, right. indoor air pollution that they're talking about in that study. So there was a new study this year that talked about outdoor air pollution's effects. People standing around outside the home, you know, that kind of thing where, where the smoke is pouring out of the, yeah. of the chimney or whatever. <clears throat> Millions more people die from that. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. It is a huge problem. Um, and one that I would imagine the oil companies would really love to solve for them. I can't believe they haven't, like, jumped right in and started selling them natural gas. I mean, you know, even if they have to retrofit every hut in Ghana, you know what I mean? It's like it's yeah. amazing well, they, they haven't, like, jumped on the trying. opportunity. The, the World LP Gas Association is getting into the, into the act here. Are they part and of this? Th- there are problems with, uh, with how that uh, would play out. Of but, course. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out was mm-hmm. that it's not just the 4.7 or 4.3 million people dying every year, but also it's people, there, there are these knock-on effects uh, on communities and on um, economies in many of these uh, developing countries where people just don't feel well enough to work. You know, they're sick with the bronchitis. They have some problem that's from wood smoke, and they don't feel well enough to go out to the field. You know, they don't, uh, they don't go to market today because they just can't breathe too well. Right. And um, so there's a, a metric for that called dailies. It's the disability-adjusted life years. Oh, and uh, uh, sociologists will go and look at, you know, go from hut to hut, village to village, and ask people, you know, how they're doing and, you know, and, and figure out, like, what the impact of this is. And, you know, the, the dailies for, for many of these countries are, are into, in the, like, 41 million wow. um, daily adjusted life years are lost 
from wood smoke inside the home and where in are, India. In wild. India alone? Yeah. So w- let's talk about a little bit. Let's, let's give a sort of geographical context to this. So what, what countries are we really talking about here? We're talking about uh, Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. uh, um, all throughout um, India, uh, China, Bangladesh, uh, Latin America, South America. There are many, many countries where where um, biomass or coal or um, charcoal or dung are the uh, the main fuel sources for the home. Right. Um, and uh, they, you know, the there are some priority countries that I can uh, that um, like which are Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Bangladesh, India, China, Guatemala. And Uganda are ones that are particularly difficult that the international efforts are really focusing on. Um, and the international efforts, is that part, is that the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves? Is that Correct. the organization you're talking about? Yeah, because you mentioned that in the article. Um, yeah. And you said yeah, that this, this... they came in for a little bit of scrutiny for me on the article. Yeah. It's a great um, uh, effort, and I absolutely applaud it. It started in 2010 as a public-private partnership right. launched by uh, Hillary Clinton, supported by the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, housed with the U.N. Foundation, supported also by uh, the World Bank, uh, Shell, Deutsche Bank, um, lots, lots and lots of players. Uh, national governments like uh, Norway and Sweden mm-hmm. uh, put money into it. And so they've been at it for five years, and their goal is to have 20 million um, uh, uh, cleaner cook stoves deployed uh, within that time frame. And, and they're, they're making that goal, which is great. And when, when you say cleaner cook stoves, that's the main thing that, it, that this is about. It's, it's typically a small clay or metal um, can or flue that uh, you can you, you put uh, little sticks of wood into or other kinds of things like um, like like um, charcoal or something like that and there's just a lot more airflow into it and it burns things a lot more quickly and more at a higher temperature and less with less smoke right you know and but, it's, and it's... you know the majority of the solutions that they've put forward to date still produce smoke and that's that was the point of this piece that right. I was writing about. I've written other interesting angles on on the on the clean cook stoves um, effort, but uh, I was particularly interested lately in this in the fact that the, you know even the solutions they're offering still are making smoke and sometimes you know they'll put they'll have two or three clean cook stoves side by side and be using them all. Yeah. You know, which put out about as much smoke as a three-stone fire. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's really hard to know how people are going to use these things in the field. It really becomes a tricky problem. Yes, I was going to say that just the training and the educational part of it has to be a, a very significant um, barrier just to implementation. But I also was curious about why, you know, as you pointed out in the article, solar cooking is kind of like not even really on their radar. I mean, they're not discuss- they didn't apparently discuss it last year or two years ago when they met, and uh, evidently it was not on the radar for this year's meetings. And I wondered why you thought that solar um, solar cook stoves are, are so much of a redheaded stepchild in this context um, yes well solar suffers from you know two main problems weather and nighttime it, you know those, mm-hmm. those 
technologies do not work when there's not enough sunlight. Um, there are places in the world where, you know, you got to cook at night, you know, you got to cook your dinner at night. Mm-hmm. Um, other places where, you know, your your main meal is, is the middle of the day. Um, uh, so that, it's always suffered a bit from that. But, you know, by the same token, you know, you look at China and India where millions and millions of people are using solar cook stoves every day. And these are primarily, well, on the Chinese side, primarily uh, government encouraged, and on the Indian side, a combination of, of efforts. But, uh, you know, it's a little too simplistic, I think, to throw solar out the window just because it doesn't always work. Right. You know, the thing is that no solar uh, cooking advocate would, would tell you, look, our solar cook stoves are the best. They'll change the world. Uh, they will say... Uh, please use our solar cook stove when the sun shines. If the sun doesn't shine, or if it's nighttime, use a cleaner biomass stove, okay? Right. And if no matter which of those things you use to get your food cooking, um, you need a third part of this uh, piece, of this uh, integrated approach, which is a, a, a thermal mass cooker. This is like you get the, the pot of rice or beans or whatever it is boiling. Yeah. And you stick the pot in this heavily insulated um, little uh, unit that, you know, it's very simple. That are, you know, these things are made all over the world. They're just, you know, straw-filled bags, basically. Uh-huh. And they're so well insulated that the, the food continues to cook in there. Right. So you don't need to keep, uh, you know, boiling the thing on the solar cooker or putting more smoke uh, into the air through in, your, in your little biomass stove because right. it's cooking away in the thing. So that's what solar advocates typically say. We need an integrated approach. Use the best technology you can at whatever situation you agree with, right? right? But, you know, solar needs to be in the mix because no matter what else you want to say about it, the fuel is free and it's yeah. smoke-free. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's indisputable that it makes sense. But what I was curious about when I was reading about these um, solar stoves, it's like why – it seems to me that there are, you know, rechargeable batteries or batteries that – like, I mean, I have them, you know, uh, those – you put them in the, in the sun during the day and then they shine light at night. You know those lanterns and stuff like that. Why, why, why can't um, solar batteries be integrated into the cook stove idea so that you could actually store energy from the sun during the day and use it again at night? Why is that outside of the purview of of, of cook stoves? Well, they certainly can, and and uh, several companies are are working like crazy to engineer a solution for that, creating a thermal battery mm-hmm. um, as we speak. In fact, the company that I profile in the piece, a, a startup company from Ohio, yeah. Um, has is is in the late in the development stages on such a thing where you get your stove out in the sun during the day while you're doing other things and it's heating up and there's a core in there, a uh, a sort of semi liquid core that's heating up inside of a tube uh-huh. and it just stays hot all day and then it can release the heat later at night when you're ready to cook. So it's almost like so a slow that cooker. is coming. Yeah. 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 And they're not the only one that's working to develop it. So uh, that, I find that hopeful. Oh, definitely. And, uh, you know, because it, it it's an important thing to, to consider, you know, because the, the fuel being free is a really big deal. Sometimes the solar stoves are more expensive, but um, even the, the wood that you gather, you know, to put into your, you know, your other cook stove that's a wood, wood burner or something like that, even though the trees 
don't cost you anything. You know, if you if you're out collecting wood for two, three, four hours, sometimes yeah. these women go out every morning. That's not free. No, it's not free. And also, one of the things yep. when I was reading up on this um, is the you know in which we haven't really talked about is the skeletal injuries, the muscular skeletal injuries that are accompanying um, this collection of fuel because it's heavy. And yeah. especially for women and children, um, this, especially for kids, you can d- permanently damage someone's uh, spine, for example, by carrying too heavy a load. And there was one woman described in an article that I was reading about this. I think I can't remember where it was, but um, she was saying, my back hurts when I'm not carrying wood, which was a really interesting um, wow. sort of reversal. But, you know, you can sort of understand it, like expanding the joints because you're not compressing them must be painful mm-hmm. for her. So that was a real eye opener as well. That- um, we didn't talk about how much these cost and how to make them affordable for uh, the populations that are most needing them. How, how much does it cost on average to, to you know, manufacture and distribute one of these stoves? Uh, it's very various. There, there are different styles of solar cookers. There's one, there's a simple box cooker uh, that you that is made out of cardboard and it has the Kyoto um, shiny surface on the inside that you yeah. put a pot inside of, and that's in the five to ten dollar range. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for American adjusted sort of um, equivalent for for the developing world. And there's uh, parabolic uh, solar cookers, which look like a satellite dish. Yeah, you Maybe have one of these. Those. They have uh, there's a pot there's a pot holder that sits in the middle. And those can be very, uh, very um, uh, reasonable. Uh, I bought one for myself here in uh, in Massachusetts for sixty dollars, and it's just fantastic. It'll boil a pot of rice, uh, a pot of water for rice in two 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 and a half minutes flat. Wow! And uh, you know, yeah, you so that, have a little video. You know, the if different want to styles see it. of those are available um, in the developing world for much less than sixty dollars mm-hmm. each. But again, you know, you need to factor in, you know, the fact that once you buy that unit, you don't have to buy fuel for it ever. You know, the charcoal costs money, the the LP gas costs money, not mm-hmm. to mention, you know, that uh, if you're if you have an LP gas stove, that's all well and good unless the the guy who delivers the LP gas his truck doesn't break down. Right. Or that, you know, the subsidies that are needed to help create the distribution into all these little um, villages all over the world are, you know, if, if those can be developed and, and sustained, you know, through a, a huge, massive effort. Those are really big questions, you know. There's there's a reason why a developing world is not getting electrified for the same reason, you know, yeah. it's electric stoves, not such a, you know, they're going right to solar panels, they're going right to mobile phones because they're not, we're not running you know, uh, telephone lines right. out in all these places. So there's so the distribution yeah. and, a, and an access problem with a lot of those other stoves. So that's why that's why solar can be such a nice distributed option. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention because it is such a good alternative, or you know, at least something that can uh, stand by in case your your fuel delivery doesn't work or you can't pick up wood or whatever the problems are. Um, I'm surprised that more people have not, more indigenous people, you know, more of the communities that would best benefit from this have not um, flocked to it somewhat more than they have. Why do you think that is? Is that a lack of education? Is it a lack of access? 
Well, What's there's also a back? cultural, you know, the, the education and, and access and knowledge are one thing. You know, you, you need to have somebody show you this mm-hmm. um, in order for you to, to grasp that it would work for you, but also um, just the, um, the whole question of, of, um, of access to the kinds of, uh, you know, financing you might need or, mm. or things like that. But um, there's, there's, there's a cultural aspect to it where, um, you know, there's, there's a, a community gathering around a fire is a really big deal in a yeah. lot of places around the world. And even in, in towns where solar cookers have been taking up um, uh, enthusiastically, people will still build a fire to stand around and, you know, drink their tea and, and, and talk about sure. whatever is going on. You know, so there's a big cultural aspect there. And there are some things that are tricky, too, like you can't, you can't make a good tortilla on a solar cooker. It's really tough. Because you can't get you need, the heat high enough. Yeah, you know, and just the, the, the quality of the cooking surface is just different for a solar cooker. And, you know, a lot of, like the one, the, the, the design that I profile in a piece is, is, is cooking things inside of a tube. Right. You know, like a, a vacuum tube, which is really cool and very uh, technologically advanced and, and very durable. But um, you, can't, uh, you can't cook a, you know, <laughs> a tortilla inside of the tube in right. some places. This is a very, that's a big staple. So there always will be need for some kind of wood, but, you know, uh, or biomass. But, you know, if you were cooking your big pot of beans on a, on a big solar cooker, you know, over there, you can burn a lot less wood. So, that, yes. again, so it's arguing for um, multiple uh, options for the, the energy poor of the, our world to, to deploy so they can um, have a little more freedom in their lives, have more time. From you know, from collecting wood every day, you don't yeah. have to collect wood every day. Maybe yeah. every third day. Well, now you can educate yourself, or you could, you know, become more involved in your community, or grow more food, grow or more whatever food. it is. You know, yeah. right? Or so there's even a, there's a, a, there are cultural and, and other um, sorts of, of things to consider as well. Why, um, you know, solar stoves aren't always taken up. Um, enthusiastically, or you know, they just need some some people to really you know show it and and and, and demonstrate that it works. In China, you know, there are millions and millions of people using them, so the evidence that it works from neighbor to neighbor is a lot higher. So uh-huh. I think it's a critical mass thing as well. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks so much, Eric. I think um, we should uh, mention again your excellent website and the fact that you're an incredible photographer. And um, and you've just left Orion Magazine to work on your own um, energy uh, company. Tell us a little bit about your energy company before I let you go. Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, ten years ago, some friends of mine uh, got together and decided to form a renewable energy cooperative, mm-hmm. which um, works like a food co-op, but our member owners don't um, own the store and the things on the shelves. <laughs> but instead, we use the cooperative model to uh, launch and co-own renewable energy businesses. So we own 12 or so uh, different companies or projects from community solar arrays to a project called Northeast Biodiesel, which is a biorefinery that will make biodiesel out of recycled vegetable oil. Wow. Um, we, we employ over 100 people in green jobs and people who will come to your home and, like, 
you know, blow cellulose in the walls and really? replace the weather stripping, all that. So, yeah, we're just saying, you know, just like in the food co-op world, you know, who owns it matters. You see that a lot in the food 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 world of yeah. the co-ops. And we feel the same about energy. We can't wait for, you know, the big utilities to, you know, really get serious about solarizing our world and, and making things more renewable. Um, we have to do a lot of it ourselves. And if we can own it as yeah. well and profit and benefit from it sure. and direct it, that makes um, so much sense. So that's what we've been up to. It's called Co-op Power, and it's based in the Northeast. And uh, it's really um, pleasurable to see the model being taken up by other groups in other parts of the country and, uh, yeah. and making it their own. So I think it's a good model. And, and co-ops, as you know, are, are fantastic uh, way to do business in this world as even as a for profit it's you know these are mission driven for profits and uh, yeah so it's uh, that's what I'm up to and uh, well, look forward to keeping you in the loop yeah please do actually I, 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 I want to talk off the air about that because I could I have a house in the Northeast I could use some help with it um, anyway thank okay. you so much for joining me and again uh, Eric's website is erikhoffner.com erikhoffner.com um, you know check out his website he's got amazing photographs I mean like I said at the top of the show the unbelievably multi-talented Eric Hoffner um, thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining me today and we're going to take a short station break, and we'll be right back with Aaron Fairbanks, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. And we're going to talk a little bit about our fall fundraising drive. So stay tuned. And today's break music is called One Summer's Day by Keto. We will be right back. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm-fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org. Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, Most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. 
the website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can. If you drink coffee every afternoon while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter. So please join me, join the Brooklyn Kitchen, join our other great sponsors, and become a member. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me is the wonderful Erin Fairbanks. Erin is um, the host of the Farm Report on Heritage, but she's also our amazing executive director, and um, she asked me to come in today um, so she could talk a little bit about what our plans are um, for the coming year, um, how she is uh, expanding the reach of Heritage. She's done an amazing job so far. I mean, we are so lucky to have her. So, Erin, uh, Take it away, babes. Oh, man. Thank you so much. And thank you for staying tuned in. Um, yeah, right. As soon as I said that, we both were like, oh, shit. Like, stay tuned for a fundraising appeal. And everyone was like, bah, bah, bah. so if you're still listening, you are awesome. I'm going to try and make it worth your while. Um, you know, the Heritage Radio Network started in, in 2009, and we've continued to um, expand our programming, bringing you new shows, enhancing the caliber of the shows, enhancing the resources that we are able to provide to our hosts and listeners and supporters. And we've come to kind of a critical stage in our organization. I think this happens a lot for businesses around the five, six year mark, yeah. where our kind of ambitions and our content and our outreach has expanded to kind of outgrow our technological capacity and our administrative capacity. And those aren't the like sexy things that people like always want to fund. But ultimately, you know, we do need to come back to our listeners a couple times a year and say like, hey, we're looking to you to chip in a little bit. And the great thing is it really is a little bit. If, if everyone who listened to Heritage Radio Network literally gave us $1, our annual budget would be able to grow quite significantly. So I'm not asking folks to get out their checkbook and write a huge check, although we love that. That would be nice. It's always great. Um, But I think it's like so many things, you know, it's the small kind of daily um, moments and actions that really create change in our world. And so many of you have been with us throughout the history of the network and have opened your checkbooks and have helped spread the word of heritage. And, you know, we're, we're asking again this year, our goal is to raise $100,000 by December 31st. And it, it feels like a really critical time for us. We would love to bring on some new staff people in the new year. We would love to kind of continue to enhance the quality of the programming. We brought you a brand new website this year, which yeah. was a, a big undertaking for us. And we'd like to continue to enhance our listeners' experiences with projects like that. And then also continue to support our hosts. I mean, Katie, I just was catching the tail end of your show with Eric. We are a huge fan of Eric's and Orion Magazine. We actually gave Orion Magazine as a member gift last year. Yeah, Um, that's right. So I'm like, I I can't say enough about them. But I think about the conversations that you have on this show, and I'm just not hearing those anywhere else. And I'm definitely um, not hearing someone ask those types of questions. It's just not out there. And And I think that you know, your listeners recognize the value that you bring to the airwaves. And I'm asking them on your behalf (laughs) to show Katie a little bit of love. When you visit the Heritage Radio Network website and you click on that heart to donate, you can actually designate to say, hey, I heard about you 
on what doesn't on kill what you. doesn't kill you, yeah. And and give Katie a shout out. Oh, I'd love that. And and let her know that hey, you're out there and I you want care. That. I need and that. you're listening. <laughs> I'm <laughs> very insecure. <laughs> well, and she works really hard every week to bring you great I programming. I do work hard on the show. Yeah, I do work um, very hard on this show. So it's kind of a twofer. You get to boost Katie's ego. Yeah. You get to make sure so that fragile. we're able to continue to operate. And you get to feel good about heading into the holiday season, already having your Gift of Heritage Radio checked off your to-do list. And guess what? You get like you get presents if you don donate. You get like tote bags. Oh and man! You get, like what do you what do you get? What are well, the premiums? I am really excited because this year we're embarking on the very first ever Heritage Radio Network cookbook. Yay! So it is uh, an ele- electronic cookbook. It's all to get you set up for a winter feast. It's recipes from our hosts. It's recipes from some of our favorite chefs and supporters. Um, and, and it's going to be like a collection of 12 to 15 different things that you can make all winter long that are seasonal, that are delicious, yeah. that, and that it's at the $60 level. Um, if you're feeling a little bit more spendy, we have a partnership, as we always do, with Brooklyn Slate. They're this amazing kind of New York State company that mines these beautiful slate cheese boards. So at the $500 level, we're sending out some very soigné cheese boards if you want to like be a fancy pants and impress your friends yeah and support another new york state business we're big on the kind of two for one hits like where is a way that we can support another small business even our t-shirts we work with a local guy who does the design work we think very carefully about those types of decisions because we want your dollar to have a multiplier effect it supports the radio network it supports our host and it supports a bevy of other small businesses who come on and talk about what they do and the important work they do on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, so it's a beautiful it's a beautiful synergy with, yes. with the local focals. Yes, absolutely. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we I had and I know a lot of people on the network had um, we all celebrated Cider Week together. Oh, I love and Cider so, Week. And so you know, I had these two great guys uh, from upstate who both run cider houses. One of them was a former professor at Cornell University. I learned so much about the local economy of upstate New York, about the economy of cider making. And then, strangely enough, I went to Boston to visit a friend, and she turned me onto this amazing cider made by a group called Bantam that's local to the Northeast also. And I ended up buying like, you know, a case of it because it was so fabulous. Yeah. (laughs) Call me girl. Well, yeah. And that's the thing. We like to kind of support the change that we want to see in the world. I'm excited to announce we just launched a partnership with the New York State Christmas Tree Growers Association. I heard that drop on my show. Yeah, Um, I got the sponsor drop. Yeah. Which is, it's it's just so cool. You know, you think about the folks who make our agriculture infrastructure work and Christmas trees are one of those things that is not front of mind, but it keeps, um, you know, space open. It gives farmers another income at a really difficult time of year. There's not much else you're harvesting here in the Northeast in December. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's a really great way to celebrate the holiday season if you're going to buy a tree. And, and not just in New York. I mean, if, if you're buying a tree anywhere in the country, you want to know where that tree came from. And asking those questions, engaging in that way, that's the type of stuff that we want to do and share and create that transparency on all of the purchasing decisions we make. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, we've just about reached the end of our moment here, Sadly. my dear. Sadly, I could chit-chat with you all day, Aaron. <laughs> but uh, I just want to reinforce that, you know, it would be great for us to have extra personnel who maybe would get into developing grants for us. And we just don't have that capacity right now in terms of staff. And then the other thing that's on my personal Christmas wish list is another studio. 
I want us to have another studio so we can do more pre-produced programming so that we can do more complex and interesting stories um, that would, you know, really inform people and bring in voices from all over the country. Um, At the moment, we just don't really have that capacity. And I, you know, I feel like we can't, you know, expand as a network without those, you know, as you said, not so sexy, but really fantastic opportunities to make better and better programming as we go through the years. I like that thinking big, Katie. Yeah, babes, that's me. All right, Jack, thanks a lot. And thank you to my sponsor. Thank you to the Christmas tree. What is their name? The Christmas tree? It's the Christmas tree growers Growers association. Association. It's so great to have them on our, on our side. And uh, thanks to my, my wonderful engineer, Jack Inslee, my guest, Eric Hoffner, uh, formerly of Orion magazine. And now um, with this fantastic uh, energy group in the Northeast. And um, I'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. There's a